or you've got a real narrative challenge on your hands that I'm surprised you didn't mention the lava flow when you first described the town. <laughs> Temperature's really warm around here. I thought you would have mentioned it. I thought it was cold lava. <laughs> for the Mundangerous Mind Palace in New York City. I'm your host, Shane. And I'm your host, Ishan. And welcome to episode 162 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about playing without maps or visual aids, using only the power of your collective imaginations. But first, the rogue traders live on a prayer in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the psychophant does absolutely nothing suspicious in the Character Creation Forge. So first up, uh, we took a little field trip. Well, I guess our voices took a little field trip over to uh, James and Chicasso's. What What do you think he records in his living room? His underwear? Well, he records us on Skype, so let's okay. go with that. I guess we were on Skype. Right. Uh, talking to James for an episode of Tabletop Babble here on the Don't Split the Podcast Network. Uh, what were we talking about? We were talking about the evolution of monster design in 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. Um, turns out the monster is your GM. And it, it, rather than evolving, he has devolved into a, uh, a mindless bastard who just wants to inflict pain upon your poor, poor PCs. You can hear all about it, I believe, in the uh, September 10th episode coming up very shortly yeah which would be uh like a week or two away also we want you to know that total party thrills brought to you by elderwood academy they're artisans who craft amazing gaming products including dice towers dice trays dice boxes deck boxes dice and more shane try saying that line really quickly without actually saying dick boxes dice towers dice trays dice boxes deck boxes dick boxes dice <laughs> <now>. <laughs> <laughs> so all the products are crafted to look like spell books or scroll cases codexes perhaps even codices and other awesome fantasy gear i i respect the use of codexes because no one knows what codices are what like people don't associate the two words together i, I think that one is a is a fine like the english bastardization look and given that uh much D takes place on a cartesian plane i'm disappointed <laughs> okay uh, you've actually been looking at a couple of these products. I have. There is uh, there's one thing that I saw when it was on Kickstarter, and I still see it, and I am so close to pulling the trigger on it. Um, I love this concept. It is their scroll rolling tray. Um, one of the things that my wife hates about us playing at our house is that we have a kitchen table that we play on that she would prefer didn't get dented and scratched up by my metal dice. So if I had a rolling tray, then I could roll my metal dice in it. But since I don't always play at my house, I would also like to not damage my friends' tables. And the problem with a rolling tray is it is very hard to transport in a bag. So what did Elderwood Academy do? They created a rollable rolling tray. Uh, it breaks up. Uh, it's got like a, a leather bottom and then wooden sides. They kind of connect together through magnets. And Wait, how do they work? Magnets? Yeah. Oh, that's like a whole different thing. They got polarity and opposites attract and all of this <laughs> stuff. Um, but when you roll it up, you are able to then transport it as like a, an easy little cylinder that fits anywhere as opposed to like this bulky tray that is going to get crushed. 
Um, you know, if you had uh, a rolling tray that you carried around, I also would buy metal dice. I just haven't done that yet because you give me the stink eye every time I'm like, uh, these these dice look uh, very heavy, brass even. Yeah, they, they look like they would gouge an expensive tabletop. <laughs> I will say people bought metal dice when we still played at Angelo and Susie's place. <laughs> and they had a glass table. <laughs> Our friends are monsters. <laughs> just like your GM. Um, so if you're interested in Elderwood Academy products, you can find the scroll rolling tray as well as um, all of their other products at www.elderwoodacademy.com Yeah, tell them DSPN sent you. You know, I always thought that Paula Abdul and uh, MC Scat Cat were actually a pretty good couple. You know, even though they were total opposites given that she was an actual woman and he was a cartoon character. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Is this the plot of the straight up music video? <laughs> it, it's adjacent? Like, which one came first? I don't know. At us. <laughs> Let's talk Paula Abdul. (laughs) Straight up now, tell me, do you really want to love me forever? All right. Speaking of, I don't know, singing off key, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the Dead World Malajact, the Rogue Traders and their two best companies of armsmen have located the Verza House, an ancient obsidian fortress once occupied by the fallen Dark Angel, Lord Cypher. And they are under attack. We have been under attack for so long that if this world was not already dead, I would murder it. It's actually only been like two days in game time. Oh, God. It's taken forever. Also, for most of the men, it is forever because they're dead. It's the rest of their lives. (laughs) Yeah. So the arch militants, Draco and Trank, are manning the fortress walls while the heretic Doc is leading the valiant defense of the gatehouse uh, while awaiting reinforcement from your Seneschal Trix and your Astropath Flare. Meanwhile, in the basement, Echo the Quartermaster has finally deciphered the tome discovered in a secret library and has figured out how to repair the damaged power generator. Uh, and about this time is when Flair uh, gives into his bloodlust, as he is wont to do, and charges off towards the gatehouse, leaving Echo to actually fix the generator on her own. Trix has also reinforced the gatehouse with his massive clave that he won off a of Dark Eldar. He's working with Doc to combat the attacker's champion, who is uh, massive and, what, made of lots of metal yeah, and bullets? He's, well, he's got, you know, big blades for hands and the, the usual champion-type stuff. Strangely, though, they're holding their own, even though uh, I think one, one hit with one of those blades uh, is probably going to chop him in half. Yeah, well... <laughs> <laughs> Funny you should mention that. No sooner than Flair arrives to contribute to the fight than Doc is cut in half. Uh, kind of split tail to tip, as it were, um, as his luck finally runs out, um, leaving Trix to match the champion by himself. And, and he is able to do that. He is a uh, truly a superhuman melee combatant. Um, he's able to match strike for strike, just this flurry of attacking and blocking and dodging and parrying and counter-striking and um, this whole like whirlwind amidst this chaos in the gatehouse. I think this is finally the time when uh, Brian was able to be like, I lightning attack. I just, I keep lightning attacking. Right. <laughs> this is what I was born for. 
But, of course, since Doc isn't there anymore to provide a distraction, Trix knows that he can't keep this up forever. Yeah, he was really needing Doc to, like, maybe get a lucky strike in there because they're pretty much evenly matched without him. And uh, and he was looking to, to you know, win. <laughs> That's looking a little more difficult now that Doc seems to be dying on the floor. All right, but back on the casements. The arch militants report that the attackers have renewed their efforts to scale the walls and breach the house from the outside. But with so many of our resources committed to the gatehouse, uh, we can't really respond other than to uh, tell the men to abandon their firing positions and consolidate within the fortress so that we can take on the attackers in brutal melee. So down in the basement, Echo has completed the repairs on the power generator, uh, but is hesitant to risk activating it because you guys still don't know what it does. Uh, and it might actually just make things worse, is what she's worried about. <laughs> Fortunately, she hears over the Vox that Doc is down. <laughs> yep. How could it be much worse? The casements are about to fall. <laughs> Doc is down. Trick's holding his own, but not for long. And she thinks, well, the Emperor protects. <laughs> Please, God Emperor of Mankind on your golden throne, if you have a prayer left for us, please give us some protection. Also, I'll cross my fingers. And so she flips the activation switch. The engine mechanism spins up to full speed, and, and as it like kind of reaches a fever pitch, there's this sudden flash of light that blinds all of the defenders, and we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, we're talking about theater of the mind. So RPGs grew out of miniatures war games, right? And those always require maps or even, you know, um, small painted terrain. We actually talked about uh, using battle maps in episode 97. But the most common, most popular way to play RPGs has always been theater of the mind. That's when the layout, uh, the terrain, uh, whatever the exact placement of the PCs and the enemies on the field of battle all take place without a grid, all in your imagination. You just talk it out. Yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean there's no map at all ever on the table, uh, but it definitely could mean that. So for most RPGs, this is actually the default method of play. Think back to early editions of Dungeons & Dragons. I think even in 3.5, you didn't have to have a map. It was only 4th edition where like you absolutely needed to have a grid. And 5e, it's it's easy to play with uh, no map. But like uh, plenty of RPG tropes that you see in a lot of systems, you don't ever actually get much information about how to do it well. So here we are. So if you're considering adopting theater of the mind or uh, or considering shifting away, what, what are some reasons that you might want to keep everything in your head? I think probably the reason that most people who like theater of the mind do it is because you can change or create scenarios on the fly much more easily than you can when you're using an actual like physical tangible map it's super useful for random encounters it's also great for unexpected fights uh you know if you're like rolling oh it's uh, two red dragons uh you come across here in the jungle it's very likely that you didn't prep a jungle scenario encounter mm -hmm. where uh, you had already drawn out the map and the and the clearing. Now you can do what a lot of people do is like pull out your Chessex battle map and like start writing on it in like wet erase markers. Uh, but that also takes a lot of time, and you've you've actually got to like figure out where everything is. Mm, if you're doing theater of the mind, you just say, "All right, you're in a clearing, and two red dragons show up." 
Theater of the Mind also gives you an opportunity to incorporate more player input because you aren't committing thoughts and ideas to paper um, or to physical representation. So they can easily uh, mutate and be molded by the players as necessary to drive the story and the drama. Yeah, like if this random encounter is occurring uh, while the party is resting, it's actually pretty easy to say, okay, you, the party, you tell me what this clearing looks like because you're the ones who picked the clearing. You're the ones who are camping here. Uh, This is just where the encounter is happening. So describe it. How big is it? Uh, Is there any cover? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We all sleep inside parapets (laughs) with moats. (laughs) Darren's instant fortress, okay? Come on. Now, hold on. If you have a Darren's Instant Fortress, you are obligated to carry around the map of your Darren's Instant Fortress. (laughs) But it's in a very uh, big clearing with uh, additional cover. Right. (laughs) (laughs) We're camping inside ruins, inside a clearing. (laughs) You don't give somebody a portable house unless you want them to decorate. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) I think we had a whole episode on this. This also creates a more casual environment for the combat. Um, it, It, Like at the table. Right. It... You don't have that time where you pause and like everybody collects their minis and like gets ready to place them on the map and everything and everyone starts analyzing the tactics like it, it can indicate to a group that is normally used to using maps and minis that this isn't the big set piece battle or some climactic boss fight that maybe this is just more of a kind of brief narrative encounter or, or like kind of a brief resource drain uh, so they know kind of what to expect from it. Yeah, when you roll two red dragons on a random encounter table, which we we can talk at another time about whether you should be doing that. That's, that's your example. And also, not all red dragons are ancient. Oh, you're right. Yeah, maybe especially, they weren't. Especially war- if you're going to run into two of them. <laughs> uh, but if you have rolled that, if this is actually kind of a detour, like you don't want to spend the uh, rest of the night fighting these two red dragons not rolling out the battle map signals that you know maybe it's fine if the the party just hides maybe if they, maybe they can run away that's okay they're not missing out on the story that you had planned if they do that yeah i mean that is one of the problems with D is like the storytelling is supposed to happen through the combat that's why there's so many mechanics dedicated to combat in D. that makes people very hyper focused on combat um and not wanting to run away because the story is always following that so if you don't set up the map, then you're giving them an indication that it's okay to like not worry about this, right? That the lesson to be learned here is that this jungle is dangerous, not that these red dragons are important to the plot. Yeah, and there's like an activation cost to using the map, right? It's a random encounter. You roll out the map. Um, we draw the terrain. We put the minis on. Okay, nobody wants to run away now. You just spent 20 minutes setting up this combat. <laughs> like You need to finish it. <laughs> Speaking of activation costs, <laughs> you also have to own a map or draw a map or create a map and also own some minis or draw some minis or otherwise paint and craft some minis. We did a whole episode on miniatures. Uh, Shane, are those sometimes expensive? They are sometimes very expensive. Great. You don't have to do any of that. Um, I live in a tiny one-bedroom apartment in New York City. I don't have a place well, to put... Well, in Brooklyn. All right. Oh, yeah, it's New York City. Brooklyn is in yeah, New York City. Yeah, okay. It's in Brooklyn, <laughs> but that's fine. It's an, outer, it's an outer borough. It is still a tiny one-bedroom apartment. Uh, <laughs> I don't have a place to put maps, and I don't have a place to put minis. So I just don't have them. Theater of the Mind, oh, it's great. It's, uh, it's the best for my imagination, and it's the best for my wallet. 
it is also easier to prep if uh if especially if you're one of those gms that uses your maps as sort of um, major tactical focuses or like sort of thematic focuses i know for morning glory you were always looking online for maps that you could use and print and modify and photoshop and carrying like rolled up poster tubes full of maps to our games uh i bet that took a lot of work oh the good old days um when i play with theater of the mind i don't do any of that so i save a ton of effort and prep yeah which is great because we don't even like to do that much prep to begin with sometimes you can get it down to almost nil right it's also best to use theater of the mind if you're playing a game that is already abstracting the combat to a point where it would sort of be strange to try to represent it on a on a grid uh if you think about games that use range bands instead of actual distances um a lot of Fantasy Flight games do this. Uh, Dark Heresy does, like Second Edition does. It uses sort of a combination of actual measurements and then and then range bands. Yeah, the range bands are like hard distances, though, so it's kind of annoying. Oh, right, right. It's like based on your weapon. Right. Yeah. But it, like uh, Edge of the Empire, for example, um, it never really says you are 30 feet away or 30 meters away because uh, Star Wars uses the metric system, obviously. Uh, it just says you are um, at short range or medium range or long range. And that sort of is malleable depending on uh, what kind of, what the context is, right? If like it's individual people running around, then yeah, that's probably like 30 to 50 feet or whatever for uh, medium range. But if you're starship combat, then, you know, it's what, 10 kilometers. But the mechanics still work out the same. It would just be strange and actually kind of difficult to represent that on an actual physical map there's also some benefits to speed of play i know our group often wastes a lot of time counting out like the optimal pathing oh do we for our movement in squares uh and whether it's better to be one square closer this way or one square closer that way or whether i want to risk moving within 30 feet and all of this different stuff right um it's just a lot of times it doesn't actually matter to the outcome um, or even the resource expenditure, so it's kind of a waste of time. Uh, if you just abstract all of that away, it no longer becomes an issue. It stops people from getting distracted or bogged down in the minutiae and just move on. What's your turn? It's also possible that maybe the reality of the map that you end up creating just doesn't live up to the awe-inspiring scene that everyone had in their imagination. I... I usually am fine with understanding that the map is an abstraction, but there are definitely times when I've heard an amazing description and, you know, we've heard about the, the crazy scene inside the volcano and, you know, all the lava is spurting and, and like there's haze everywhere. And then, you know, we hastily draw a map and it's just like this uh, red circle, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> oh, like our Dark Sun Arena fight? <laughs> and then a brown circle <laughs> around it, which is the cave walls. Right. <laughs> We're yeah. lucky we had two colors of marker. And, and even worse, so sometimes like that representation can actually suppress the imagination as well. Um, like players will feel more open to giving their input if there isn't something on the map that might potentially contradict them or something like that. So um, there's just kind of tangential benefits there as well. Yeah, I think especially if you have like a three-dimensional combat, the two-dimensional map can really serve to flatten the the combat in the minds of the players like if we're all swimming around i can imagine if we're doing theater of the mind yes you're looking up you're looking around because you know the enemies could be anywhere but once you've got it on the map it's 
All right, maybe represented by like having a, a D6 yeah. underneath the mini. <laughs> Wait a minute. Is that stacked on 2D6 or 1D6? <laughs> and are each of those feet yeah. or... And I think lastly, um, doing away with the map can help certain kinds of players avoid uh, gamifying the situation too much. Like there are some people who just associate maps with mechanics. And, you know, if you have the kind of player who hated fourth edition because it just, to them it felt too much like a video game then it sort of predisposes them to not take this particular combat seriously and you know other kinds of players maybe take it a little too seriously yeah uh, there's that like moment like you said with that ring of lava right where there's an enemy next to it and a player looks at the map and goes okay if i had a way to push him into the lava this would be the perfect moment um but it's possible if that player doesn't have the map <laughs> and just gets the description the reaction is instead like I charge into him and try and shove him into the lava, you know, like you've, you've taken a a step away from the mechanical aspect and now you've kind of freed up their imagination as well. Right. Yeah. You look at the map and go, well, you know, I don't have a pole arm, so I'm unable to push them 10 feet. So that's not going to work. Whereas theater of the mind is I'm just going to hit him as hard as I can. And you tell me if they go in. Exactly. All right. So a couple of tips when you're using theater of the mind, Uh, first off, you want to present an accurate description of the scene. I think the, the worst part of using theater of the mind is when you have misunderstandings at the table. And those are easier to avoid when you start off with a clear description. So a couple of things you want to make sure that you knock out. Um, first off, what is the size of the location that you're in? How big is the clearing? Like, How big are we talking? You know, if we're in an empty caldera, uh how far across is it you know how much room do we have to maneuver yeah and this doesn't have to be precise numbers this has to be you have as much room as you need or it is a very close and confined space or you have room for ranged weapons and charging into melee that that type of like broad description is really what you're looking for right and to make sure that you are sort of putting in putting it into your players' heads that they can interact with the environment, you might usually want to mention like what the material is. You know, uh, is this like crumb, crumbled pumice that they could actually pretty easily like carve through with a weapon? Is this a uh, brittle stone that they need to be careful around? Like are there pillars that they could potentially knock over? You kind of want to define the what you might call the perimeter of the the arena that this battle is taking place in you know wh- what is it that they should expect to be able to r- run around in not that they're necessarily limited to it but you know give them an idea of what you're prepared to uh, run a combat in so another thing you want to make sure you mention are um, some representative like descriptions of terrain or obstacles that are in the environment this can include things like hills or other changes in elevation or areas of difficult terrain you know bottomless chasms running water lava those types of things yeah when something's on fire players usually want to know that right (laughs) and then of course you want to make sure that they know who the enemies are and where they are now that doesn't necessarily mean that they have perfect knowledge right the players have a particular vantage point from which they're seeing this scene and you know you kind of do this with battle maps too like you don't necessarily put all the minis on the table but lots of times people will see you take out a certain number of minis (laughs) oh i still see you have uh more beholders there that you're keeping uh probably wouldn't have brought those out if they weren't hiding somewhere right but describe to them who they can see 
Um, if there are obvious areas that they can't see or sense, then you're going to want to point that out, right? Like you can't see around this particular corner. Uh, you have no idea what's there, but like point it out so that they're aware of that. What do the enemies look like? What are their inferred capabilities? You're not in a position where uh, players can pick up a mini and read the name off the bottom and go, oh, okay, yeah, like, I know what um, a drow weapon master is. I, I know what they're doing, right? You, need, you sort of need to describe what they're wearing, what their weapons are, um, what's their attitude, uh, what kinds of abilities do the, the players think that these enemies have. And then logistically describe uh, the location of the enemies. Again, this isn't necessarily like exactly where they're standing within a five-foot square. It's just the general location like uh, and the grouping. So three of them are on the dais. One of them looks like a, a matron mother, two weapon masters, and then like one person who looks like a non-combatant. And then over here, you know, on the other side of the cave is, a, is about as specific as you need to get. You know, you describe who's over there. The most you might do is, hey, they're about 60 feet away from you. They're about 120 feet away from you. Yeah, I wouldn't even go to that level of detail. I think that gets too much into the tactical aspect of it, and it just becomes overwhelming to manage. Like, I think I would go lighter and let the players ask the questions so they're more involved, right? Because the the key to theater of the mind in comparison to the map and minis is that the players are sort of self-imagining, so they need to interact with it like mentally versus having it laid before them like visually, right? So I would rather set up prompts that I can then answer the questions so they're engaged rather than kind of draining them with a novel of description. I can get behind that. Like um, the response to the questions probably gets more uh, detailed because like, okay, so if you describe where the enemies are and I'm a warlock, my first question is how far away from me are they? And like, I specifically want to know, are they within 120 feet of me? Because that's the range of my Eldritch Blast. Yeah. So the answer is, yeah, they're within range of your Eldritch Blast yeah. or like, you know, for the Barbarian. I can charge 45 feet. Do I think I can make it? Like, mm -hmm. yeah, they're in your range, but they're probably not in the halfling's range, you know, like that sort of stuff. Oh, you don't know my halfling. <laughs> well, touche. <laughs> um, then it's also important to make sure you know anything that's out of the ordinary. For example, if there are allies or hostages. <laughs> yeah. Um, or there's, you know, a giant glowing chest <laughs> or a ritual being performed in yeah. the corner, you know, those types <laughs> of things. You want to go ahead and call that out as well. Um, just, you know, that might be important to the players. Yeah, we talk all the time about having alternative combat objectives. This is the time when you need to be like, hey, these are the things you may want to notice because maybe just stabbing everybody isn't the best way to go about this. Right. Yeah, anything that glows. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or anything that has the uh, proverbial exclamation point over it. <laughs> or like the press square to interact button. <laughs> so you touched on this, but you want to give an accurate description, but not necessarily a full description, like give a partial description. Like the players are about to go in to this scene that you set and smash everything. It's going to change so quickly. There's no point in being so detailed uh, when like two initiative ticks later, it's all different. Yeah. I mean, cause you're not going to try and recreate the experience of gridded combat. You're going to except that this is a different type of experience, right? So you don't need to know your exact range to all six enemies. You just, like, to triangulate your position, you just need to know broadly, like, what's the best you can do uh, given your present situation? Right. Can I get to that one? Right. That's the one I want to stab. We've all agreed we're going to stab this guy first. Can I do that? 
<laughs> no? Well, then I want to stab that one. Right, Can okay. I get to that one? <laughs> so who's the second best stabber? <laughs> yeah, so players, at this point, you should really feel... Well, actually, at any point, really. But specifically now, you should feel free to be asking questions to clarify um, anything that you feel like you don't understand, anything that you feel like you need more information about or that interacts with your particular abilities because, you know, your GM doesn't necessarily always have those in mind. Right. Um, and this isn't typically where you want to use, like, mechanics to derive this stuff with skill checks. Like, this is just sort of the basic information that you're you're looking for at a glance. Right. Like, this isn't the time for, okay, I spend an action and make a knowledge check or whatever, right? This is, um, we would have gotten this information because we all have eyes. Yeah. Then I think it's also important to kind of provide the backstop to your players that if they seem to be making a decision that's either out of character or suicidal or unintentionally suicidal (laughs) (laughs) or otherwise seems a little dumb, just kind of pause and double check to make sure that they understand the situation so that it's not like a a metagame out of character problem that's prompting them to do something. Um, That way they can kind of make sure that they're acting as their character and as their character should understand what's going on. Yeah, uh, there's just more opportunity to get your wires crossed a little bit, especially in the heat of combat. Like I would I would even go as far as, you know, if um someone is playing like a particularly strategic character uh, and and they're saying, "All right, I'm going to attack these people over here." I might be like, "Um you're not attacking the same person as like your allies because it would make sense that that character would do that like why would they not focus fire probably it means that they're getting something confused or the answer is yes i am sure and butt out you know and that's fine too yeah exactly i mean absolutely people have the freedom to make those decisions you just want to make sure they're actually using their freedom and aren't mistaken right yeah, I, I mean, we had this happen not even in a combat situation just last night in our game uh, where the sort of description that you guys had for me and the way that the other players had interpreted it and I think the way that you and Brian had interpreted it sort of led you into conflict that didn't necessarily make sense in character. Oh, yeah, Brian and I were all on board. We were like... um, you attack and I'll shoot, right? right. And it was <laughs> at like, the same whoa, whoa, time. Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> what, what are you using to base this on? <laughs> like, I think you might be under, you might be misunderstanding as players. Also, you have drinking been drinking way more than we have. <laughs> <laughs> that may have happened. It's generally good advice when you know there's not much whiskey left. <laughs> hold on, do you fully understand the consequences of this particular situation that you are in? Right. <laughs> if so, great. So let's talk about prepping theater of the mind. My, it's my favorite to prep because there's uh, there's less minutia, right? There's um, there are fewer logistics. You don't have to print anything. You don't have to draw anything. Although I will say, um, I as a GM find it often helpful to have a map for me, like that I won't give anyone else, and I won't recreate it or draw it. I won't use it as a handout. It's just sort of nice for me to be able to refer to it to be like oh yeah like how far away would that thing be or like how how big would the like how many people would the fireball probably engulf oh that's interesting i uh i deliberately don't do that so that you guys can suggest things that i like that are better than what i had in my mind anyway (laughs) (laughs) i don't want to be distracted by what i wrote down yesterday i want to be open to your ideas i don't (laughs) screw you players 
I hate your ideas and they're the worst. I, I mean, I think that is definitely good advice for somebody who's a bit nervous about transitioning away from having a map um, and, and thinks that might be a challenge for your group or, or for even just you as a as the GM, right? Like, it's okay to have that crutch. It doesn't hurt you in any way. It's um, also going to end up being the scenario you find yourself in if you're running a published adventure because, like, almost always there will be a map of a place the adventure expects you will have a combat. That's, like, why you buy the published adventure. Right. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that I want to cut that page out of my adventure or photocopy it or redraw it. So maybe I'll just look at it and then just describe it to you. <laughs> right. So I think it is also helpful as you are prepping encounters to at least have some ideas of what the limits of the encounter should be in terms of what the players can add to the scene. It can be very helpful if you prompt them at the beginning to add elements to the scene this is one of the things that I like most about Phoenix Dawn Command is uh, the torch mechanic allows mm. the at just in every encounter, the players are contributing to what their characters see. Um, and then at, they get rewarded for interacting with those environmental elements. So that's great, right? But you still want to know, like, what are the reasonable limits of, like, what I'm going to allow here? And, and, and especially, like, be thinking about the downstream effects, right? Like, you can't add lava into the middle of the tavern how would there be a lava flow in the middle of this town? Oh, watch me. <laughs> well, or you've got a real narrative challenge on your hands, and I'm surprised you didn't mention the lava flow when you first described the town. <laughs> Temperature's really warm around here. I thought you would have mentioned it. thought it was cold lava. <laughs> yeah, this is one of those situations where even if you haven't prepped, right, even if you are relying on your players to create the scene, you know, like you might in Dungeon World, um, you you do want to know what makes sense, uh, what is feasible. Um, you know, if there are bones scattered around, you might ask the player, what kind of bone is it? And if they say, uh, is it a dinosaur bone? You should probably have a good idea of whether or not, one, there are dinosaurs in this world. Two, it's feasible for a dinosaur bone to be here on the surface and lying on the ground. The, the opposite of that, right, is if you limit them to they added the element of dinosaur bone, or sorry, they added the element of there are bones on the ground, then you as the DM should maybe have an idea of what else is in this dungeon that could have left its bones on the ground, right? Um, and that helps you tell a little bit more of the narrative of the environment to the players by answering that question of what kind of bone is it. Yeah, this is uh, just sort of that same pattern of like call and response, question and answer. And, you know, just give a little more information um, or flesh out the information that you're giving a little more than, you know, only answering the specific question the player is asking. Uh, and that helps them ask better questions. So in terms of actually running theater at the mind of the table, I think the most important thing to keep in mind is that you're going to have to adjudicate a lot. Yeah, it is totally, totally fine to keep your numbers fuzzy like i'm right now we're giving you permission to not worry about the math <laughs> like maybe you don't even use numbers at all you know maybe maybe you've decided the party is 50 feet away from the enemies in the first round they you know spend a 30 feet of movement and now they're 20 feet away okay fine uh on the enemy's turn though like they're probably moving as well and it's probably not going to be either directly closer to the party or or in a, like a perpendicular movement right so do not start doing trigonometry to figure out exactly how far they've moved depending on like the the angle of approach yeah right? you, you can measure distances in time yeah <laughs> right it's like 
How far away are they? Oh, they're two moves away. <laughs> like you can do that all right now and not attack, or you can move and then move again next turn. Like it's very simple. Yeah, it's this is definitely the time where you can start speaking in game mechanics. You know, or you know, you point to um, the dwarf and it it's different for them, right? You're in heavy armor and you're a dwarf. Uh, yeah, you you can't get all the way over there. You can get over uh, to the left side, or you can get to. Um, the closest enemy, you can't get to the ones in the background. Yeah, you, you can get to the frontline fodder and not to the uh, important character there with, with that faint <laughs> glow of, <laughs> of like higher XP behind them. This allows for a really convenient level of, of abstraction. So think about the scenario where a PC wants to run up the tower staircase and reinforce the battlements. Great, okay. In theater of the mind, that, that just happens. They say, here's what I want to do in my turn. And then they do it, and then that's their turn. Wonderful. It's not the situation where you're using a battle map, and it's like Monopoly pieces, right? You're like counting each five-foot step and then subtracting it from your movement and finding like how far up the stairs did I get and does this count as diagonal movement, and then do I need to spend an action to open the door and how far into the battlements can I actually get? And, oh, I'm like one square short. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's actually what you just mentioned is actually the whole reason to do this, right? You never fall one square short unless it's more dramatic to fall one square short, in which case you always fall one square short, <laughs> right? Like that that's the power that you have as the GM is, is that ability to kind of help control the narrative to make it the most exciting for the players. Yeah, you can almost make it, but you're going to be just a few feet short. Do you still want to do it? Of course I want to do yeah, it. Yeah, I, I've got to, <laughs> you know, but that that ritual is going to complete in one round. So I've got to fix it immediately next turn. Another benefit here is that you can always change the terrain like wholesale uh, on a whim. You know, when you have things like um, broad environmental effects, like wizards casting wall of fire or, you know, like an ice storm <laughs> or a hurricane from a druid, you know, those types of spells that, that just create wholesale changes in the battlefield earthquake. Like you don't have to worry about wiping down the map or like rolling out a new example that's been pre-printed. You can just be like, cool, that happened. There is a wall of fire now bisecting this tavern. And by the way, the tapestries have caught and uh, there's screams from upstairs as people are getting smoked out of their rooms. And oh yeah, it's, it's a disaster now. Yeah, you don't need to draw all that on the map. My least favorite thing is when there's a massive terrain change or environmental effect, and I have a map that can't readily be changed. You yeah, know, if it's been printed out before. It's been printed and I don't want to lose it. <laughs> yeah, or even I'm fine with losing it, but like I can't erase the printed like bar stools and tables mm -hmm. and stuff. I can't like I can X them out to mark them as broken, I guess, but that's not what happened here. What happened is that the wizard blew the roof off the tavern. Right. And like we're basically standing in splinters in the middle of a village. Exactly. It also makes it a lot easier to describe things like flight or invisibility or hiding. Um things that don't always make a lot of sense in like real world terms to be depicted on a game map. You know, it's like invisibility is always that weird thing where it's like if you don't mark it on the map did it really happen and all of these things um or like flight <laughs> you know like what does that d6 represent in terms of height of where this creature is yeah you don't end up with that strange tension between what you can obviously see on the map and the description that is coming out of people's mouths uh my characters here 
None of you can see me, but I, I'm putting it here because I, I need to put this mini somewhere. Or like, the rogue hides in the shadows. Okay, but I know exactly what shadow he's in. <laughs> like, how hidden is he? Also, it's not shadowed. Right. Should I shade it in? Well, I mean, we might move the torch over there, so don't. Right. <laughs> that happens a lot with other kinds of cover. You know, fog, for example, um, or even just like difficult terrain. You know, uh, maps tend to have those uh, little triangles to mark them as, as difficult terrain. It's a lot more difficult, though, when you've got people creating difficult terrain. Yeah, or uh, in games that require cover in order to like not die. Um, things like Star Wars, actually, <laughs> like FFG Star Wars, is pretty brutal if you don't mind your uh, your defenses. Um, God knows, forty k would benefit if you guys ever took cover. <laughs> <laughs> but we are brave soldiers of the Emperor. You are brave, brave fools. <laughs> um, they told of- me they told me only in death does duty end, and I'm kind of tired of my duty. <laughs> <laughs> But that's the thing, right? Is like you you fight within like a, the ruins of a temple or something like that, and you expect that you should be able to bound between cover and do all those types of things. But that's really hard to represent on a map um, in a way that's super satisfying and doesn't involve a lot of counting. So you can kind of just narrate as you like move forward. You like, yeah, I, I duck in behind like a ruined statue, and it it gives me the cover I need. Yeah. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you drew a map? sort of on the fly yes and then you realized uh just like the way i happened to draw this map made it so that the most tactical option is to stay in one place and just hunker down and Mm -hmm. not use the rest of the map because like the columns are just slightly too far to to get to in one move uh yeah do you remember the fight in the uh imperial chapel aboard the ship that you guys boarded uh that was stuck in the war when we fought the chaos space marines uh-huh. yeah you're right they, there was there was no point in ducking from pillar to pillar because yep. you just don't have the movement for that right and so like i just kind of had to reward jim for having draco charge forward <laughs> <laughs> yes was reward like, him by well, getting him shot in the face I, but i let him engage first yes <laughs> right like i didn't just shoot him down as he was moving i was like cool you're fully in cover they're not going to shoot at you like you're flanking them and that's rad and they're still going to just cut you down with a chainsword anyway so we'll clean it up on the back end but like here's your reward for doing a cool thing even though i've realized that i've totally screwed the pooch on this map i mean i remember there you know at a certain point you had to be like all right uh they lay down suppressing fire and that totally destroys the pews that you're hiding behind (laughs) exactly now you don't have cover (laughs) right so you kind of have to move (laughs) (laughs) but that doesn't happen in theater of the mind because you we just say, can we, we're going to jump from pillar to pillar and, and hide behind them, like shoot and then move behind a new pillar. And you go, awesome. Yeah. Or you're like, cool, we're in this chapel. Like there must be pews that we can hide behind, right? Yes, there are. Cool. We're hiding behind them. Cool. They blow up the pews. <laughs> like, <laughs> now what? <laughs> now what? <laughs> like, okay, I guess we're going to use the cover, like uh, the, the, the pillars now. <laughs> I push them into the lava. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean the reactor. Right. <laughs> Um, it also avoids the the situation, like, it, it makes certain kinds of area effects more interesting to use. Now, this is player or, or GM, but you know that situation where you've got the map, and then um, someone drops some sort of, like, uh, horrible zone, like, well, like Maddening Whispers or Hunger of Hadar or something like that, right? Uh, right on top of the bad guys. In the fiction, what has happened to either the the enemy or you know the player if if the gm is doing this is 
everything just goes dark and horrible things are happening here in the mm-hmm. dark. Yep. Like but the little pl- darkness tentacles are streaming out and eating your eyes. Right. <laughs> but the player can look down and be like, oh, I'm, I'm only like three squares away from the edge of this zone. Uh, I guess I sort of pick at random which way I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. I'll go this way. Or even just you know that with one move you can get out of the zone whereas like the character would have no idea you have no idea how like big this darkness is right uh it also makes it easier to handle either fights that are happening over extreme distances or varied um sort of sub locations uh very easily so a good example of that is like on a ship where you have multiple decks Right. And and you can easily move between them, but when you're on, you know, the top deck, you can't really interact with the cargo deck. And then from there you can't interact with the sub deck. Yeah, and it gives you a nice opportunity for uh, dramatic irony because, you know, everyone at the table knows what's happening at the other places, but the characters don't. You might describe particular muffled sounds. Maybe they hear explosions, right? Just at this point, uh, you want to keep in mind and, you know, make it obvious to the players um, how long it takes to sort of traverse from one location to the other. Like how much time do you need to spend to go up and down the stairs? Mm -hmm. You know, I know that if I'm going to go to another floor, all that means is like all that means is like I can only really interact with someone or something near the stairs on that same round. Right. It also makes it very easy to split the party in combat. Because uh, you can effectively run two fights where everybody is equally invested in both, even though you don't have to worry about them like cross interacting. Um, and we had something like this actually in our original Dark Heresy game, where uh, if you recall, our characters were trying to snipe the guards in order to like infiltrate an enemy as we sent in a negotiating party to that enemy <laughs> uh, in order to try and like. I don't know, get some equipment from them or something? Slash distract them so that they wouldn't check to see if their guards were still in place. Yeah, exactly. So we had like (laughs) a very limited window with which to like assassinate these guards, but also like they were in a mid-negotiation type situation. It never could have worked on a map, right? Because we would have like drawn them in this one room and then um, you know, 300 meters away, mm-hmm. like the guard posts that are on the perimeter, like all the way around this, like we just never would have been able to represent this on a map anyway. And instead it made this cool dramatic moment of like, cool, you kill that guard. And then let's see what happens in the negotiation. Okay. They're still distracted. You got another shot at the next guard. You're in position go, right? Like we got to play with time and distance and like pacing all in one, um, theater the mind encounter yeah there was no there was no situation where it was like all right i'm gonna move to this square and do they have half cover or like i want to move somewhere where they don't have any cover and i want to clean shot it was just i move where i have a clean shot right when you are running theater of the mind though keep in mind that characters who have spatially important abilities should still get some kind of benefit out of those abilities like it it kind of sucks if you're a barbarian who has fast movement but that never ever comes up oh it always comes up the moment they try to run away <laughs> <laughs> you get away yeah. you're fast or the moment they attempt to run, the enemy attempts to run away and oh no they don't they get a, they get an axe to the back catch of the head up. <laughs> uh, you can also sort of play with um some of the other rules like okay if everyone charges that's great if the barbarian's a little bit faster maybe they just go first right like maybe they're higher in the initiative order or there's not even really initiative maybe it's just you go in order of speed you know whoever makes it to the front line is the one who attacks first 
Um, same thing with area effects. You know, it's always there is a world in which the enemies perfectly distance themselves so that they're in some type of unit cohesion without exposing themselves to area effects uh, at, at great risk. But that world is incredibly lame in theater of the mind. <laughs> so the answer is like, hey, are they grouped enough that I can catch them in a good fireball? The answer is yes or no, right? And if the answer is no, then the next time they ask, it should probably be yes. Yeah, or, right? you know, even, well, I'm well hidden, right? I'm just going to wait till they are all in one location yeah, exactly. randomly, and then I fireball. So go ahead and just be aware of what the... what the cool things are that your characters would want to do and make sure that you're allowing opportunities for them to use them. Yeah, I mean, we have this, like, human tendency to sort of want to avoid the extremes, and so you just sort of end up being like, oh, you get about half of them every single time. Right. All right, so there are some times when it is actually easier to use a battle map. And personally, I think it's when your players volunteer to draw them (laughs) because they feel like drawing a battle map. Uh yeah okay that's one way <laughs> like if they're gonna go for it I'm like I'm not gonna stop them you know yeah I mean you still have to have the minis and everything ready to go for it so like there is a little more prep that goes into that but yeah I'll buy that if they're gonna do the work I'll accept it um same thing if you if you get some new minis that you really want to put on the table uh don't blame you for wanting to use the battle map I think it's also interesting in um visually stimulating environments that are uh well well-defined with a map like for example if the party is lost in a labyrinth again that's a lot of work so if someone is willing to do that it can be really interesting to actually look down at all of the dead ends that you've encountered yeah yeah there was that moment um if you remember the game we played at gen con with rich howard like three years ago oh uh, yeah yeah before uh-huh. he was working on descend into midnight like it was his um star wars rpg but it was like infiltrating an, an underwater um research station and he laid out this beautiful map that had been created um, that he had purchased for it and like kind of built this whole scenario around and was like, cool, there's like this docking bay here, there's this hatch over here. And we like looked at the map and we're like, yeah, but the ideal point to hit them would be right here. Can we just blow open this wall? <laughs> and to his credit, the answer was yes. <laughs> but like without that visual representation, we would have taken option A or option B and not had seen like, oh, there's actually a third way, right? Um, so sometimes like if you mix it up, you can get different results. Yeah. And then the actual game played out, uh, mostly theater of the mind. I think there was only one scenario where like two people were doing a combat and they'd come in through like a lower docking bay and that was actually on the grid. Right. But everyone else, I think my character was just like in a a drowning submarine. Yeah. You were on the ship. (laughs) Uh, I had come in through like through (laughs) the, the tactical piece of it. It was great. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is like some systems really do just require it. So like fourth edition D and D or, um, you know, that edition of gamma world or strike, like these are games that are built around having the grid. You're doing way too much work to try and abstract that. You should just kind of lean into the grid for those games. Yeah. Can you talk about where exactly the blast five is going? You can, but don't. Yeah. (laughs) Save yourself the trouble. All right, so in conclusion, uh, using a battle map is a lot of fun and sometimes really useful. Uh, But Theater of the Mind is great. It is the way that I think most of us learned RPGs in the first place. Like, Uh, I don't know about that. I I bet that's probably... Did you start off with a grid? Yeah, I bet that's a 50-50 split. 
Interesting. I think I well, okay, anyone who's using who learned with 4E learned with the grid. Okay, 3, sure. 5 <laughs> is probably 50/50 is my guess. Like in 3rd edition? Yeah, I I can see that. But before that, I I don't know. I never used a grid until third edition. Like when I learned with AD and D, it was oh, all we, exclusively theater of the mind. No, we had the minis. We wanted to use them. <laughs> uh, oh, I, you rich kids playing D and D. Well, we played Warhammer first, so like oh. we had the minis. We were used to to using minis, right? Interesting. So, but yeah, I mean, I think it's important. Like you don't need to commit to one or the other. Like there's no right answer here, and there's no best answer. Um, they're really both tools that you should get comfortable using knowing which situations are going to work best for your table and your group. Yeah, I will say, though, that unlike using a battle map, there will be in every RPG some scenario where it is easiest or probably most optimal to just play it out theater of the mind. Yeah. So everyone should know how to do it well. Yep, totally agreed. Um, And then also keep in mind that theater of the mind is not exclusively for combat. Um, in games where like combat has more of a social orientation or like um, you know the question of which lunch table are you sitting at uh, is more relevant than necessarily how far can you throw um, an axe <laughs> for example like in those games using the techniques of setting up theater of the minds uh, encounters are still valuable, right? They still build the story. They still build the environment. They still add to the player's imaginations and and kind of inspire them. Yeah, the techniques really help you flesh out scenes and make them feel a lot more interactive to players. All right, do you hear that, Ishan? That's the curtain call for the theater of the mind. Well, then we're going to have to head on to the Character Creation Forge to build a... (laughs) (laughs) I mean the Scottish play. (laughs) We're screwed. (laughs) All right, let's move on to the Character Creation Forge. <laughs> Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, at TotalPartyThrill. So here's a message from James Intracasso and Tabletop Babble. Remember, we'll be on September 10th. Hey you. Yeah, you listening to the podcast. I bet you like tabletop role-playing games. That's probably why you're listening to a podcast on the Don't Split the Podcast Network. Well, did you know there's a show on this network called Tabletop Babble, where I, James Intracasso, talk to many industry greats and awesome people who play role-playing games about role-playing games it is great it's like any conversation you would have at your local friendly game store i've talked to people like mike merles one of the lead designers of fifth edition dungeons and dragons wolfgang bauer of cobalt press ruth tillman who's done a lot of awesome game design work with pelgrane press and so many others you can check it out over at don't split the podcast network.com all right thanks james and now on the character creation forge we are building the psychophant. You know, there's nothing worse than a sycophant, a yes man. I think it's obvious that it's dangerous these days to have too many people around you who are only telling you what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. It's almost like maybe you should have people holding you to account. Okay. So what is the psychophant? <laughs> a character who, who has dangerous words. It turns out... You don't even know that they're your enemy. You are dead before you know that there's someone to confront. 
Okay, this feels like a little bit of a of a charm situation. A little bit of charm, a little bit of a little bit of psychic damage. A little bit of sneak attack. Yeah, a little bit. Time <laughs> it. <laughs> All right. So what's the build? It is Enchanter Wizard fifteen, Shadow Sorcerer four, Rogue One. Hell yeah! I'm so glad we got the return of Rogue One to the Character Creation Forge. It has been a grip. Boom! Right? I know. I was seriously like uh bar no rogue one that used to be our deal right that was us we were gonna make shirts until that movie came out stupid movie (laughs) (laughs) all right so 15 levels of enchanter wizard what do we get from that (laughs) eighth level spells suck it (laughs) uh enchanter gives you hypnotic gaze which is an at will hey how you doing we're friends right uh split enchantment lets you cast those little enchantment spells um twice two different people and the crazy one is at level 14 you get ultra memories do people read this one uh people don't know that you charmed them or changed their memories yeah ultra memories is uh is trouble if you get there as an evil character oh man (laughs) and once you get it it's hard not to end up an evil character exactly (laughs) i think also you can you can just erase hours of time Mm -hmm. for them they they just don't remember what happened then yeah all those terrible things that that dominate made them do uh you also get spells like mind spike and synaptic static so here's the great thing about these particular spells is that they are they deal psychic damage and we'll we'll get to that in a little bit a little bit okay so from shadow sorcerer four we will get the ability to resist death once per day you can eat those spell slots for more sorcery points which is great because the metamagic the metamagic you want is subtle spell so here's one problem about being an evoker when you fireball somebody they know it and so does everyone else now you can be the the subtle evoker but when the room bursts into flame people know it (laughs) yeah they go looking for the guy who can cast fireball right but what happened what does psychic damage look like like is it a stabbing pain behind the eyes i i like to imagine it as just a little blood trickling from their nose there you go that could be anything Mm -hmm. you know with a subtle spell you can stand right next to somebody be their best friend and then mind spike them to death (laughs) charming (laughs) yes also Uh, you also get darkness, which you can see through, which is also handy in a pinch because nobody can see that you're then casting those spells. And you don't need to uh, use up your metamagic points. Then from Rogue One, uh, we get sneak attack, which is obviously less important. But more more importantly, we get expertise. That's what we're always here for, uh, which we will naturally use for um, those staples of the character creation forge, deception and persuasion. I'm just going to convince you that I'm your friend. I didn't even have to use magic. Right. You gave this to me. <laughs> you said it was a gift. Uh, and then I think last of all, and, and in another character creation forge first, the only feat we would recommend is Magic Initiate Bard. Specifically so you can take Vicious Mockery, which is, if you uh, notice, verbal components only deal psychic damage. Mm-hmm. I'm not attacking you. I'm just telling you, telling it like it I'm is. Just, I'm just telling, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just, a sh- I'm just a straight shooter with my psychic damage. Right. Look, nobody likes you. Okay. I know it hurts. Well, why? Why is your nose bleeding? That's weird. It's weird that your nose is bleeding. Freak. So, in terms of leveling order, obviously we'll start Rogue One as is tradition. 
And then I think probably, I don't know, knock out five levels of wizard, get to third level spells, then probably pick up sorcerer so that you can do it very quietly, mm-hmm. uh, and then finish out your wizard. Because also, Ultra Memories is an excellent capstone. No one should have it at 14. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. So, who is your psychophant? Uh, Shane, have you ever been uh, gaslit? As a, as a straight white male in America? <laughs> no. I'm the only segment of the population who doesn't have to worry about that. You know what, though, Shane? It's nice that you feel like you haven't been. <laughs> right. <laughs> You've got me there. Um, yeah, my character is an evil character because Alter Memories is just so horribly awful. The things that you can do with it, I th- like. you can make people do terrible things. You can make people kill their friends and then forget it ever happened or you know be totally happy about it mm-hmm. um this is this is basically the the uh character who is saying why why are you punching yourself right why 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 are you hurting yourself is it it can't be be anything that i have done you must be the problem here <laughs> i would not play this particular character in a party i would however i think uh have this character befriend the party as a patron as as um a friendly rival uh who then turns out to be the evil mastermind they were searching for the entire time maybe mm-hmm. the party doesn't even remember doing those terrible things they've been accused of mm-hmm. however the uh, illusionist has it on tape <laughs> okay <laughs> what about your psychophant ishan would you like to see a magic trick Mm, fine i'm skeptical oh that was my joker impression oh. <laughs> this, this is obviously the joker's build right <laughs> so you God. can just make up a series of damaged backstories and build the joker oh is that this. why he did all those terrible things this is how he did all those terrible things to harley quinn uh, yeah exactly okay. yeah level 20 alter mind wonderful terrible yeah no <laughs> All right, before we wrap up, we want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And as a reminder, while you're there, you can also find a link to the Character Creation Forge Codex, which is a listing of every single Character Creation Forge build we have ever done uh, in a spreadsheet that you can easily filter and search to find what you're looking for. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about using illusions. And in the character creation forge, we're building, speaking of Batman villains, the Scarecrow. I didn't sign up for this. (laughs) That's it for episode 162 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name. But either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. 